0: Visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places.
1: Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild.
0: Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. The ocean is a dark and mysterious place. One can get disoriented bobbing like a cork in the water with no land in sight. Sailors who are dehydrated or sleep-deprived have been known to hallucinate seeing ships, islands, and even people that aren't really there. And history is riddled with tales of vessels turning up with their crews missing, or a lone survivor who can't remember what happened next. Ships have ways of signaling for help, of course, from flares to radios, and even satellite phones nowadays. But back in the 1940s, one ship in distress didn't have a radio or a telephone. And it didn't shoot a flare into the sky, either. It sent a harrowing cryptic message in a last-ditch effort for help that came too late— What followed could not be explained. It started… well, no one is quite sure about that. The event was said to have occurred in 1947 when a cargo ship named the SS Orang Medan sent out a distress call. It was a 40-year-old steamer whose name in Malaysian translated to Man of Medan. Much of the 23-man crew was made up of native Indonesians, but whether they had just set out or were returning home is not known. The ship was traveling through the Strait of Malacca. A narrow passage separating the Malay Peninsula and the island of Sumatra in Indonesia. On a fateful day in June, a message was sent from the Orang Medan in Morse code. The dots and dashes translated to We float. All officers, including the captain, dead in chart room and on the bridge, probably whole of crew dead. Followed by the words I die. No other details followed. That was the last thing transmitted by the radio operator on board the ship. Two other ships in the area, one called City of Baltimore and one named Silver Star, received the message, but it was the Silver Star that reached the Medan first. They attempted to communicate using their loudspeaker, but there was no response. No damage was detected on the ship's hull either. With all other options exhausted, Silver Star's crew boarded the vessel to investigate. What they found stopped them in their tracks. The entire crew was dead, their faces frozen in terror, as though something had scared them to death. Their bodies were twisted in unnatural positions as well, though they bore no visible injuries. And there were other signs of strangeness at play, possibly even supernatural. For one, the outside temperature was around 100 degrees Fahrenheit, but the Silver Star crew felt a haunting chill as they stood on the ship. There was also just a single lifeboat missing, And the bodies were in a bad state of decay, despite having died only hours earlier. The search party had planned on taking a closer look at the bodies, but were forced to leave in a hurry when one of the Madan's smokestacks caught fire. Instead, they decided to tow the ghostly ship back to shore and salvage it for parts. Almost as soon as the men left the Madan, an explosion went off somewhere below deck. Then another. In total, four explosions rang out before the Orang Madan's smoking hull slipped below the waves taking its crew's remains with it. After the story got out, it was believed that the ship had been part of a smuggling operation involved in transporting harmful nerve agents and other toxic chemicals. It was possible that ocean water had breached the cargo hold and caused a chemical reaction with the toxins inside. The ensuing cloud of gas would have poisoned everyone on board. Another theory suggested that it was carbon monoxide gas that had killed captain and crew, caused by an undetected fire in the ship's boiler. The mystery of the Orang Madan is one that has stumped sailors and researchers for decades, namely because on paper, the ship never existed. It could not be found on any register, and the first mentions of it were in the news stories coming out of Indonesia. They were based on an account told by an Italian officer from the Silver Star, who had seen the bodies for himself. A photograph was allegedly taken too, but when a newspaper editor tried to get in touch with him, the officer had vanished. But once the story was out there was no stopping it. Papers in England and the United States republished it without checking its veracity. There are people today who don't believe that the Orang Medan even existed at all. Then again, perhaps the key was in the missing lifeboats. Maybe someone who really knew what happened had gotten away before he could be caught. The world may never know the truth for sure, but the story of the Orang Medan lives on as a terrifying reminder that the ocean can be unforgiving, and that dead men really do When someone is incredibly skilled at something, they can make it look easy. What we don't see, however, are the hours of training and rehearsals that got them there. The flubbed lyrics in a song, or the foul balls they hit into the stands, or the wrong notes on the sheet music. But sometimes, someone is so good, it can seem like there are supernatural forces at play. Robert Johnson, for example, died in 1938 at the age of 27, but was said to have been so proficient as a blues guitarist that he must have gotten his talent from the devil himself. According to the legend, Johnson took his guitar to a crossroad near a plantation in rural Mississippi at the stroke of midnight one night. A man appeared before him and tuned the guitar before strumming a few tunes and handing it back to him. The deal was done. Johnson had just become a blues master. And there's a reason these myths persist where expert artists are concerned. It's hard to imagine how someone can possess so much talent on their own, especially while they're still so young. But Robert Johnson wasn't the first person to have reputedly sold his soul for fame and fortune. Before the blues guitar, there was the classical violin, and the man who made it sing like no other, Niccolò Paganini. Paganini was born in 1782 in Genoa, Italy. His father played the mandolin as a side business, an instrument he began teaching his son when Niccolo was only five. But when the boy turned seven, his attention turned to the violin. Paganini was something of a prodigy. His talents earned him scholarships and opportunities to study with some of the best violinists of his time. But his teachers quickly realized that they were no match for his growing skills. He was a force to be reckoned with. When Paganini turned 18, his playing earned him a top spot as first violin of the Republic of Lucca, a now defunct state in Italy that was annexed by Napoleon in 1805. Control of Lucca was handed to Napoleon's sister Alyssa, and Paganini served as violinist in her court until 1809, when he began touring again. It wasn't until 1813 when the virtuoso started making a name for himself as a violinist. After a successful concert in Milan, Paganini skyrocketed to success, traveling all over Europe and giving concerts to large audiences. Even the Pope was a fan. But Paganini's talents also earned him ire from rival violinists who were jealous of his abilities. For one, he didn't perform with sheet music. He memorized his pieces prior to playing them. Paganini was so blazingly fast, too. His long, thin fingers were able to play twelve notes per second, A difficult, nearly impossible feat for most violinists. It wasn't long before rumors surrounding the origins of his abilities started to emerge. An audience member in Vienna claimed to have witnessed the devil himself assisting Paganini on stage. Another person said that they once saw the devil cause lightning to strike his bow during a performance. It eventually got to the point where audiences stopped attending his shows for fear of getting too close to evil. To remedy the situation... Paganini was forced to prove something he never thought he would have to. That he was human. To do this, he had a newspaper publish a personal letter his mother had written him. Clearly, if he had a regular human mother, then there was no way he could be a product of the devil. The letter was enough to quell the rumors, and audiences started coming back. So, why did Niccolò Paganini excel in a way no other violinist could? Well, that answer ties him to the other famous musician I mentioned earlier. Robert Johnson. It was believed that both men had something called Marfan syndrome, a genetic disorder that affected how their limbs and appendages grew. Those with Marfan syndrome were often tall, with long fingers and toes. Both Johnson and Paganini boasted elongated fingers that allowed them to move about their instruments with great speed and agility. Sadly, Paganini died of cancer in 1840. A priest tried to give him his last rites just before his death, but Paganini refused. He didn't think that it was yet his time. For those who had accused him of being in league with Satan, this was just one more reason to be suspicious. But Paganini did die, and regardless of what people thought of him, they had to give the devil his due, because that man left behind an impressive body of work, one that's still performed today. you